This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, listeners. Welcome to New Books and Celebration Studies, a special series on the New Books Network. I am Emily Allen, your host for this episode, and our guest for today is Dr. Alessandro Testa, author of Rituality and Social Disorder, the Historical Anthropology of Popular Carnival in Europe, published by Rutledge in 2020. Rituality and Social Disorder is the first comparative historical anthropology of popular European carnival in the English language, with a focus on its symbolic, religious, and political dimensions and transformations throughout the centuries. It builds on a variety of theories of social change and social structures, questioning existing assumptions about what folklore is and how cultural gaps and differences take and shape and reproduce through ritual forms of collective action. It also challenges recent interpretations about the performative and political dimension of European festive culture, especially in its carnivalesque aspects, while presenting and exploring the most important features and characteristics of European pre-carnival modern carnival and discussing its origins and developments, Alessandra Testa offers fresh evidence and up-to-date analyses about its transversal and long-lasting significance in European societies. So our guest, Dr. Alessandra Testa, is Assistant Professor in Anthropology at the Institute of Sociological Studies, Charles University, Prague. So welcome, Dr. Testa. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for your invitation, Emily. Um, and um, yes, again, thank you for giving me the occasion to talk about my, my last book. Yeah, I'm looking forward to our talk. So speaking of which, before we get into the book, can you tell our listeners a little bit more about yourself? Uh, yes, um, I, I studied history, ethnology and religious studies uh, in several Italian and, and French universities. And then I got my PhD in uh, social anthropology in, in 2013. Um, and since uh, since then, I've been conducting uh, as a social anthropologist, as a as an ethnographer, I've been conducting long term intensive ethnographic field works in in Italy, the Czech Republic, and, and Catalonia in Spain. And uh, and in this in the meantime, I've also been affiliated with several other European uh, universities, such as the University of Vienna, uh, of Tallinn, 
uh, and and finally the University of Prague, Charles University in Prague, as you said. And uh, I work at the crossroads of diff different disciplines, especially social and cultural anthropology, uh, but also religious studies and, and comparative uh, religions, uh, with uh, with a focus especially on the ethnology and cultural history of Europe and also cultural heritage studies. And my general interests, my, my research interests are rather wide, uh, and they encompass topics ranging from I don't know, public rituality to secularization, from, from long durée uh, cultural continuities to social transformations, from popular culture to vernacular religion, uh, from mythologies to esotericism, uh, but also uh, nationalism in Europe and, and theories and methods in, in historical and social sciences. Uh, and I've been trying to uh, approach this these topics from a multidisciplinary and uh, uh, sort of composite uh, theoretical uh, approach, personal one. I like I like to think, and I work uh, comparatively on different European societies. So even though I've been studying uh, certain countries, certain regions, ethnographically or historically uh, more uh, in depth, uh, I also uh, try to you know to build this sort of comparative uh, framework or comparative uh, perspective when when approaching certain topics like carnival in this case uh, and that trying as i said yeah to look at that comparatively to see how european societies uh, developed or if they developed any general patterns in in their in their in the in, in their in, in their cultural life social cultural life and um, yeah this this trajectory has led me to publish a, a few books four books and also to edit four other volumes and to publish a certain number of, uh, of articles and other pieces of writing uh, these things can also be found on the internet for example in my academia.edu uh, page web page and uh, and currently i'm leading a research project perhaps i could also add this uh, a detail uh, about uh, the re-enchantment uh, or the reenactment of certain forms of religiosity in Central Eastern Europe, like in post-socialist Europe, for instance, um, Poland, the Czech Republic, Slovakia, and Hungary. And uh, and I'm leading a research team that is working again comparatively on how the religious landscape of Central Eastern European societies has changed since the fall of of, of communism. So, yeah, I think these are the most important information about myself uh, at the moment. Uh, and uh, perhaps we can move on uh, talking about uh, about the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sounds like you have a lot of uh, interesting directions that you'll be going. So if you have another book that comes out, we can maybe do another episode for that one, too. <laughs> oh, that sounds uh, great. great. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, anyway, going back a little bit to this project, right, you know, all those different interests of yours definitely came through, you know, in this project. So can you talk a little bit, you know, about the research process for rituality and social disorder, you know, and specifically, you know, going back to your point about like discipline stuff, uh, what is the significance of historical anthropology, quote unquote, in this uh, well, the book is, is the, the outcome of uh, long-lasting research interest. Um, I, I started being fascinated by 
carnival and carnivalesque culture in Europe already when I was a master's student back in 2008 or 2009. And the, and the book is indeed the product of some 12 years of, of research, a dozen years of research, as I said, both ethnographically and comparatively. But in this book, this book is a book of, uh, of history in the end. It's a historical anthropology, as the title says. So there is less ethnography, actually, very little ethnographic uh, insights and more uh, historical and historiographical uh, the, the sort of uh, framework or rather the approaches is, is, is eminently historiographical. But nevertheless, there is also a lot of anthropology in it. Uh, so it is definitely historical anthropology because the way I uh, study history by uh, merging uh, or, or infecting it with the anthropological theory, but also because I'm an ethnographer myself. And that's in a way that makes it inevitable to, to have uh, an anthropological gaze on, on historical sources. And, and the book, besides the book, is a, um, as I already said, is a sort of... Uh, uh, composite uh, work. It, it contains also already published materials, uh, and some of these materials also came from, um, uh, again, from this sort of cross-disciplinary perspective of mine. They were they were written as pieces of uh, history of religion, or uh, comparative religion, or historical anthropology, or anthropology of religion. And, and therefore, yeah, it is inevitable that all these different sensibilities like merged and fed the book differently. Um, and I, and I think, uh, I think, well, it, it is up to the reader to judge whether I was successful or not. But, uh, I think it does, it does make sense. You know, the, the, what, what the, the outcome is, uh, at least, yeah, that's, it, it's acceptable and it has been considered so by the reviewers as well. <laughs> Yes, that's what's important. Uh, it got through the review process, so you're good. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no, <laughs> you got that far. You made it. Um, and, you know, so thinking about sort of the macro level here um, before we kind of dive into more of the book's content, you know, what do you think sets this project apart within the very large body of carnival studies? Like what makes your book different, I guess? Uh, well, that's a very good question because uh, I think I, I start the very first lines of the preface or or the foreword about about the, these, these uh, oceanic like uh, sort of uh, ungraspable, un undigestible amount of studies of works about carnival that have been published in all uh, Western languages in the last 150 years. So there is an enormous body of scholarship out there. Uh, so it was difficult to kind of carve out my own little niche in which to put my book and make it you know, acceptable also uh, as a as a as a product for the for the markets. But I think it, the book does have some specificities. Well, first of all, as surprising as it might sound, there is no general history of where there were <laughs> there was no general history of carnival until a few months ago uh, published in english so there are dozens of monographs out there about these or that carnival about these or that feature of carnivalesque culture uh, lots of uh, articles of course and but but no monograph no 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 book about it uh, and these 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 kind of books 
uh, um, like general introductions or or sort of uh, comparative uh, uh, overview on the topic uh, do exist in in other languages. So there are at least four of them in German. There are a couple of them in Italian, a couple of them in Spanish, uh, more than a couple of them in French. Uh, so if this kind of struck me as you know, unexpected when I when I when I first when I first thought about uh, putting this book together, I thought, will they ever accept? I mean, uh, as you said, there are so many there are so many studies. Uh, but then I realized, yeah, perhaps there is something missing. Quite paradoxically, and it's a general introduction into into this topic. <laughs> so I th- I think I I I filled this uh, this gap, and um, yeah, and this is also another reason why the the book should make some sense to the reader, I guess. <laughs> oh yeah, absolutely. If I ever teach like a seminar on carnival studies or a class, this would be a great you know like starting point for sure for some of those students. Um, it's very accessible in that way. And it's also very organized. Uh, it was one of the most organized books I've read recently. Um, Cause you seem to have very clear like introductions and conclusions going from part to part. And you know, the, the logic from start to finish was very clear. So can you talk more about that and sort of like the different ways this book can be read, right? Is it something that can be read cover to cover pretty easily? Or do you think it can also be read like section by section sort of like, what's the approach here? No, th- thank you. I'm glad you say that. Uh, uh, that means that one of my one of my goals uh, has been has been fulfilled. Uh, and uh, indeed, I wanted to make the book readable um, cover to cover. Obviously, that's that's the one of the uh, one of the um, well understandable uh, goals of all writers. After all, that people read their their, their books uh, in their entirety. Uh, but uh, the truth is that yeah, it can also be read just ch- chapter by chapter, or chapter also also work as that standalone uh, papers in a way. Uh, they all uh, each of them has its own story to tell. Uh, although this, these stories are obviously interconnected and, and feeding it into one another, uh, there is a red line. Uh, but this red line also this can also at, at some points it, it, it spreads into different threads and that are then like tied up uh, again, especially in the last chapter, which is probably the most important one. So um, the, this is the, the nature of the book as it is. It's also obviously uh, influenced by the fact that some of these papers had already been published and they already had their own autonomy or independent uh, uh, structure. And, but I think that in the end, uh, yes, I, this was, this was uh, quite some work to, to tie them together in a convincing way because as as you know like the book also the chapters they are not linear timeline linear like time wise you know there's the the, the 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 time frame or the rather timeline is not linear so we start from from a general overview into mostly medieval and early modern uh, carnival and the development from from its inception then the book goes back to the uh, early middle ages and late antique times so it goes it takes a step back in history and then actually in the last chapter it goes much forward again because most of the sources and the materials i interpret and the theories i talk about are about late modern to to uh, to early modern uh, sorry um uh, late uh, early modern uh, 
period uh, sources and case studies. Uh, so the, you know that there is this um, not linear trajectory, which is I think it's not confusing in the end because I try really to make it clear why I go back and forth in time, whether without the general interpretative reasons for that. But yeah, but it's in 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 this respect, the book is definitely um, structured in a in a non-conventional way. Yeah, but it really, I mean, again, it was very easy to follow your reasoning for that throughout um it was very guided and I, I think it ended up working really well um in the end so it's interesting like you said how they were sort of like independent pieces and then you know kind of ended up working really well i think um in this book and then speaking of chapters right so let's get a little bit more into the content right you state starting with the first chapter that quote, questions existing, the chapter one, quote, questions existing assumptions about what popular culture is, but can also be considered an introduction and systemization in the English language of a theory of popular culture from mostly Italy and secondarily in France, end quote. So what are some of the ideas of popular culture that you discuss here? And, you know, how does this set up the discussions in the chapters that follow, right? You were already kind of talking earlier about how this book does a lot kind of for the first time in the English language um, research. But yeah, can you talk a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Um, Well, the first chapter, um, it is, um, it is a a special chapter in the sense uh, that it it does introduce uh, the, not the topic of the book, which is, this is more the, the job of the, of the foreword, but it does introduce two uh, important questions, which are the who and the how. Now, well, uh, if if we, I think I think I do this in the, in the foreword. Like at the end of the day, let's let's just look at what this book is about, and the, with the usual questions like the what, where, when, and then precisely who and how. And 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 I think that for a book of that has such an anthropological soul in it. The who is particularly important. So who are the people? Who were the people at the center of these practices? Why did they do what they did? And uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, but this chapter also answers the question, how do we uh, actually, how do we identify these people? How do we identify these classes or categories of groups of people that were, were involved in this, in this cultural manifestation, this phenomenon? And uh, so I wanted to, to to set this clear from the beginning. I want to I wanted to make it clear that when I talk about the people, I, I have I, what I, what what I have in mind is a, a very specific type of in in the general social structure of the of pre modern Europe. I'm talking about a, a specific set of classes, a, a specific set of groups. And what I do in this first chapter is to say why I do that and who these people are. And uh, and how and how in the sense of what were what was the methodology I used to to make this work of boundering of of, uh, of delineating uh, this this social the social configuration that was the object of the final object of of the book because at the end of the day uh, well the book is about carnival meaning is about the people that indulged into doing this and why and how they came to do it and how it developed over time. So the, it was unavoidable, in my opinion, to to really go as in depth as possible into the question of, of who who, were, who was at the center of these practices, and before all the other questions came came along, like why and where and when. 
And of course, I won't, I won't say any any more about this because I will leave it uh, to the to the reader to discover who these people were. Yeah, yeah quite a teaser <laughs> there. So go go read the book. Go read the book. Yeah, and then of course, you know, following that, you're right. Like it gets more into the um, actual, like more topical, you know. Approach there, right? In chapter two, you get kind of into uh, different aspects of what you call a critical model of European carnival, and you discuss sort of what these people have done, like historically, anything from masking to feasting. Um, so again, you don't have to t spill all the beans here, like with the book, but can you uh, at least summarize for our listeners some of these different aspects of carnival that you get into in chapter yes, two? Yeah, of course, I would spill some of beans uh that's the that's what a teaser is supposed to do after all and um what i what i did with this um critical model what i had in mind when i came up with the idea of, of shaping a sort of uh model to modelize the, this european pre-modern carnival in order to make it malleable to make it usable also as a as an analytical tool uh, and also at the end of the day to know what we're talking about when we're talking about carnival in pre-modern Europe, huh? to really identify the object of, 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 of the investigation, uh, what is at stake. And in order to do that, uh, I isolated a few specific elements that, in my opinion, characterize uh, carnivalesque culture, carnivalesque culture as it developed in Europe since the, 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 the early or rather the high Middle Ages. Uh, also distinguishing from, from similar phenomena, right? Because, of course, the work of comparison is, is important, but in my opinion, in order to do comparison, we have to uh, isolate and identify what we are comparing uh, as, as clearly and as, as satisfactorily as possible. Um, and uh, so these, these elements, they are used to make comparison, but at the same time, they are also comparatively constructed. Uh, for example, masking, let's say masking, uh, one of the most iconic and most mm, sort of known and popular um, elements of, of, of carnival everywhere, right? And so we also build this, this category of the mask and the masking comparatively by juxtaposing different cases, different elements from different places and times. And, and we, if we do that, we realize that this thing is indeed one of the constitutional elements of carnivalesque culture. So what I, what I tried to do was to put together these comparative elements, uh, the, the ensemble of which uh, shape or form this, this model of, a historic, of what historical carnival uh, was. Uh, I, I still, you know, I continue talking at the, in the past, uh, using the past tense, because, as I said, the book is mostly about pre-modern, pre-modern Europe, uh, sorry, pre-modern Europe, of course, but also pre-modern carnival, as it developed between the Middle Ages and the, and the beginning of the, uh, roughly the beginning of the 19th century. And um, so this is, you know, the, the question went. <laughs> and... Um, yeah, and some of these elements are um, that that form this model, which could also be considered, therefore, as a dynamic model, not a static model, but a model made of elements that changed over time, that can be identified, but that at the same time require cost, constant calibration in order to be historically 
uh, in order for the arguments to be historically convincing, right? Because, of course, if we talk about masking or if we talk about the invasion of values, these things changed according to a variety of uh, variables, you know, time, place, social, the social class taken into consideration, and so on and so forth. So the idea of building up a model is not to uh, essentialize the, the object of investigation, but rather to make it more historically uh, convincing or rather to make to make more historically convincing the, the ways through which I identify it. Uh, and uh, some of these elements are precisely the carnivalesque, which is a category that developed actually uh, that was that was uh, theorized by uh, Michal Bakhtin, uh, a Russian uh, famous, uh, rightly uh, well-known, uh, renowned Russian scholar, historian, literary theorist, and also extremely influential, extremely influential figure in the field of cultural studies as well. And uh, and I and I and I present this this category because even though it has been criticized and also deconstructed by historians, namely, for a variety of reasons that we don't have to go into now. But uh, I find it nevertheless useful. I take this criticism into consideration and also present it because it is actually quite important piece of, uh, uh, a piece of, of, of uh, intellectual history about, about carnival. And there is indeed such a thing as the carnival aspect thing. And I, and I try to say why in this in this. Um, in one of the sections of this chapter, and this is definitely one of these elements uh, forming the, the critical model of Carnival. The second one is precisely, as I already mentioned, this masks and masking, uh, which, uh, which um, uh, were an extremely important and still are an important feature in, in Carnivalesque culture all over the world, not only in Europe, uh, of course, many of these elements, you know, I, the, the book has a focus on the cradle of carnival, which was Europe, and also the place where the most important carnivals developed over time and uh, where the features crystallized, shaped, crystallized over the centuries. But as we know very well, carnival was also shipped along many other things to the New World, especially. It was part of the, of the uh, cultural... Um, let's say, the cultural um, uh, luggage that the colonizers you know, brought to the, to the New World. This is why Carnival is, is also a very lively and present phenomenon in, in both North and, and South America, especially in South America, especially in Latin America. Uh, and, um, and yes, so this digression was just to make it clear that this is not only about Europe in the end, right? These, these elements can also be fruitfully used to understand, interpret what's, what is going on in carnival culture, so to say, in this type of very specific type of festive culture outside of Europe. And another important, very important element, in my opinion, is that of uh, feasting, waste, and unproductiveness, uh, like the ethos of carnival, so to say. And now this ethos unfolded during uh, the centuries and, and again crystallized from being one of the possible variations of carnivalesque culture during the 12th and the 13th century to become one of the constitutional elements. Uh, and we even nowadays we associate carnival with uh, festivity, with idleness, with, uh, with uh, uh, 
uh, vacation, no? things that are related with this idea of the of the of unproductiveness, you know, or, or, or rather of waste of material waste of resources and time or money to buy the masks or to indulge into uh, into fisting by but but producing like symbolic value uh, through this uh, material waste which is in my opinion a very important anthropological contribution to the understanding of carnival uh, and carnivalence behavior and ethos um, but perhaps the most important constitutional element of carnival which is, in my opinion, the, the ritual inversions, which is also connected with the, with the political sphere and uh, with uh, the relations of power, so what also lies beneath, uh, structurally and functionally beneath uh, the culture of, of carnival. These ritual inversions, they should have been treated, actually they are treated as one of the constitutional elements, but they are so important to me that I decided to present and interpret them in the fourth and final chapter. So the fourth and final chapter actually moves from an interpretation of these ritual inversions, uh, but they are perhaps the most important element of the, in this model, but they are not uh, discussed in any length in this verse, in this second chapter. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, and I was thinking about, so obviously, like you were saying, much of this is focusing, you know, on carnival of the past right but i was curious about sort of in your experience in more recent times like have you experienced like what kind of carnivals have you experienced firsthand and where do you see this model you know coming into play in your experience with carnival now (laughs) yeah well that's another very good question because as a social anthropologist i I i've worked uh, for years with uh, with contemporary uh, carnivals or carnivalesque festivities and us- usually going to a certain place to do my ethnography and using, so to say, the carnival to understand um, other social, social, social cultural uh, features or characteristics of that society. This is a, precisely what I did in, in, uh, in Italy, in Catalonia, in the Czech Republic. Um, okay, this would be a very, <laughs> this is a very big topic because we, we will enter into the present, in the more anthropological part of my research. Um, and uh, I've also, yeah, this is also something I've been in, engaging with uh, for many years. I've published many works about this. Uh, and I will, uh, yes, indeed, this, this, the, the, the understanding of how this very special type of uh, a cultural manifestation carnival developed over the centuries. Of course, it helped me a lot also to understand how and why it works. It still works in the presence, and it's actually a very important uh, uh, phenomenon in many, many uh, European uh, locations. Also, not European, but I'm, as an anthropologist of Europe, of course, I focus on Europe. So, I, I am, I'm sure I can uh, I can offer this conclusion about Europe. Uh, it is still very important, and for our, for many reasons, 
And it is not only important for the local people, but it's also an extremely uh, fulfilling, it can be an extremely rewarding object of investigation for the social scientists. Because by starting there, you can actually, we can, we can, uh, we can um, grasp or penetrate into different spheres of, of life of the life of a certain community or by doing work of comparison, comparing what happens in different societies and understand and understand things to the through this uh, privileged lens of for this privileged window into society, which is festive culture and carnivalesque culture in particular. Um, and in the case of Vitaly, it, this, this, this helped me un, to understand how uh, this, this community uh, re reshaped and reconstructed their entire past, which had been damaged during World War II through the reenactment of the local carnival. So the entire local identity, the sense of history, the sense of being connected with the locality, and even the very uh, the very soul or lymph of the community, all these things were very much connected with this central festival in the life of this um, of, of of these people. And, and without understanding the festival, I'm afraid it would be impossible to understand them and their worldview and their, their sense of what they are today, even though these things come from the past. In the case of the Czech Republic, it was, an ext- it was a very rewarding object of investigation because it helped me understand, to understand, for example, certain changes in, 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 the, percep- in the self-perception of these people and in their politics of local culture, uh, in the transition between socialism, real socialism, and up until 1989, and, and liberal democracy in the last 30 years. So, of course, these were impactful uh, transformations, uh, political, economic transportation, transformations that, of course, influenced also other spheres of life, such as leisure or, or fest- the festive sphere, or religiosity, but in turn, the, these other spheres also affected uh, the political and, and, econo- and, and economic ones. And, and, and Carnival, or rather the Masopust, as it is called in the Czech Republic, is a typical Slavic uh, expression for it, also used in other Slavic-speaking countries, uh, it was one of the, one of the elements that, that could, uh, that in a way showed the entanglements of these transformations and even partly influence these transformations themselves. Uh, so again, it might at, at, at first sight, it might appear as a, even as a trivial uh, object of investigation. And my conclusion after many years is that uh, no, absolutely not. Uh, it, is, can, it can actually be, and very often is, uh, a, 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 an extremely important uh, uh, element in the life of these people, and therefore an extremely important object of investigation for the social scientists, for the anthropologists. And last but not, not least, I would like to spend a few words about uh, my Catalonian research, because in, in Catalonia, um, I was studying a similar case, uh, also just like in the case of the Czech Republic, also involved in the process of cultural heritage making, right? The UNESCO and the process of building up this national identity through heritage, you know, through making through making heritage, intangible heritage, um, connected with uh, with the with the with local with regions with local communities. Uh, this is also an extremely 
important, uh, other important side, very explored these days. Uh, very many carnivals are being transformed into uh, intangible cultural heritage in Europe and uh, elsewhere as well. So there is also this other side of it, the process of institutionalization, uh, making cultural heritage out of it. This also happened in the in Catalonia. But in Catalonia, this, this got entangled with the political crisis of 2017, when Catalonia claimed independence again. Uh, and this uh, resulted in, in a disaster uh, in, for many reasons. And, uh, and I was there and I was studying this thing. And I saw how, how all this set of political and social claims and concerns uh, got poured into the, the, the festive sphere and how it reflected what was going on at large in society. And without, without being inside the carnival as a participant observer, uh, I could never understand or penetrate into some of these elements or more nuanced, uh, intimate even, elements of the local life, local social life, that were all only available to me after I got initiated into their carnivalesque culture. So again, even today can be an extraordinary uh, object of, of, of study and it can help us understand a lot of different things from politics to religion to uh, ordinary daily life uh, and, and, and uh, family or uh, other social uh, configurations or, 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 or structures. And, and, uh, and I can confirm this. This has been put forward by the entire scholarship in the last few decades about you know, modern scholarship about carnival, and I cannot but uh, certify that, and uh, and it was quite the same in my case. But with this book, I look rather at how did we get here, uh, even when it comes to these contemporary cases, uh, what what lies uh, before that, and uh, but yes, indeed. So it, it it is, it can be, and it is a very interesting. Um, case for for understanding in order to understand uh, our contemporary world. Yes. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting in chapter three. You really do try to get into how did we get here, right? You get into the quote unquote elusive origins of European carnival. So, can you talk about how you complicate you know carnival's roots in that chapter, and then along the way, what do you think are some of the more important? bigger questions that we can actually ask about its prehistory, for instance. Yes. Yeah, again, we are also proceeding just like in the book. Well, we go back and forth in time, and now we are, we are back in the, in the olden days. Um, of course, this is the trickiest question. In general, in historical anthropology, in history of religions, the, the question or even the quest for the origins, right? This has been, uh, all, all, it's all, it has always been a problematic and sometimes also at times a controversial issue uh, because of political and ideological connotations that are very often um, in a way connected or, or, or um, that uh, underlie the discourse about the origins of a certain cultural phenomenon, right? Uh, this idea of the pristine or the purity of a certain uh, or, or, the, or this symbolic connection between, for example, the nation and uh, folklore and traditions or between a local community and their festival. And these things can also uh, be used for identity purposes, for the, for the better and for the worse, uh, as, as we know this also. 
uh, if we look at the history of uh, of the 20th century, for instance, you know, the, the quest for the origins can be can be a rather problematic a rather problematic thing to initiate and under and under undergo and undertake. But uh, in my case, I try. So knowing that this is a, a tricky, a thorny uh, question and in a tricky field, I try to use all sorts of methodological uh, prudence and uh, proceeding very cautiously uh, in this minefield of uh, how do we, uh, how, how we look at the at the past and the origins of certain of certain long-lasting and important cultural features of European uh, of European uh, in the history of Europe right and uh, and there are a lot of methodological difficulties when it comes to uh, you know cultural survivals cultural continuities and discontinuities anthropology was born out of this uh, if we think of Fraser I don't know and Taylor and this quest for precisely comparing um, different cultures in time and in space because certain things were supposed to to continue not to characterize the evolution of human uh, of humanity uh, in spite of, uh, of 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 major transfer of tecton tectonic transformations that happened over the centuries so this idea of what survives over 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 the time in, in time and 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 reappears or reemerges um, after centuries or millennia of of, of, of being disused, for example, right? This is exactly the case of Carnival. For 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 decades, especially in the late nineteenth uh, century up up to the mid twentieth century, this was the major uh, sort of interpreted paradigm, right? The Carnival is nothing else than a sort of pagan survival or a or a, or a, or a re cultural relic for from from times in which. People indulge in, in, in this absurd masking or or, or inverted uh, transgressive rituals for reasons that we forgot, but continued formally to 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 undertake just out of habit, huh? or that we refunctionalized and which and, and, and we gave new meanings to uh, because we, this is the work of culture. And so this this paradigm of the, the of the survival has been extremely influential, extremely strong for decades, and we are just you know, just come uh, started to come out of it just a few a few decades ago. I would say in the six seventies and the eighties we really started to look at these things differently, um, and uh, so I take all these tradition of studies into consideration. I take these problems, uh, I take them seriously, and I try to show. Uh, what is the possible de historical development of Carnival in these crucial centuries between the fall of the Roman Empire, um, the, the hegemony of the Catholic Church, of the Church, and then uh, the transition into the late uh, Middle Ages. Um, these are the years in which Carnival um, de like developed from, of course, it had its sources, right? And this is another question. You know? I, mean, I, I prefer to talk of sources and development instead of, of survival uh, and this is what the chapter is about and of course this quest also takes me quite far away uh, if not for just uh, disproving trying to disprove some hypothesis like for example that concerning shamanism and some of these rituals being connected with a sort of shamanic uh, 
uh, Eurasian substratum that existed before the Indo-European or the Latinization of, of part of Europe in historic times. And uh, so I also try to not only to propose my own, uh, con- like to offer my conclusion about this historical development, but also if need be to disprove uh, unverified hypotheses that I think have been around for already too long. So yeah, this is this is the, this is perhaps the most historical historiographical chapter, and uh, but also very much um, uh, influenced by history of religions, for instance. And this can be considered a chapter in the an, an exercise in the history of religions, because carnival, of course, has also uh, religious uh, characteristics. But yeah, this is another big topic that. Again, I leave up to the reader to discover. Yes, and something that could be talked about for hours, for sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, and you were getting at this earlier, but now looking at chapter four, right? You were saying that this is where you really start getting into that idea of inversion um, and some of the different aspects of maybe more the political aspects of, you know, the European festivities. So, Along this like through line, what are some of the key ideas that you discuss here? Uh, these last fourth and last chapter is by far the longest, uh, the most complex, and also the most innerly articulated. So I try to say a lot of things uh, from different perspectives and to come to the conclusions uh, because it is also the concluding chapter, and um, and it took me. This is also the chapter that took me, uh, perhaps, yeah, also the longest to, to finish, to write. Um, and um, and I think uh, it also offers some uh, quite new or unpublished, unprecedented interpretations and conclusions about, about Carnival, um, especially when it comes, as you, as you rightly said, uh, to its uh, political dimension. Right. What, what was the, the political significance or the political fallout of, of, of carnival and specific carnivals uh, in Europe in those centuries? And, uh, and, and this is also the chapter in which case studies are uh, even more important than the other chapters, because uh, I go a bit more into this thick description of a few cases and I try to apply the theories or even my own take uh, interpretative sort of my own interpretative framework to these case studies and to see how uh, what what comes out of it uh, and if it and if it works and and yeah as I said I think indeed uh, it in the end I I was uh, com- like sufficient sufficiently um, uh, satisfied with uh, with this dynamic and with how the case study interacted or. Uh, intersected with the theories, and uh, in order to come with a come up with new a new a new possible uh, grand interpretation, so to say, of of carnival uh, in Europe, and uh, and in order to do so, I also use some concepts and theories from other scholars. Well, that's very <laughs> common, inevitable. We all do that as scholars. We have to rely on what our predecessors uh, have, have done and written um, when dealing with whatever topic. Uh, this is also what I do, but I also try to a bit to move out of this uh, 
ritual and religious and historical anthropological studies. And I try to find also possible uh, inspiration among among authors that work in to with, about totally total totally different phenomena or about different people in different areas, uh, or not even anthropologists or historians for that matter. And some of these key concepts and theories, and I'm about to name some of them, uh, are indeed or were indeed not developed by by not all of them. But but not definitely not by by people working on carnival, for instance. I think that of the five that I would like to introduce now, briefly, uh, there is only one of of, of such authors that actually uh, wrote about carnival. The others never really did, or did it only very marginally. Uh, so I was really trying to 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 use uh, new new or not ever used uh, frameworks to. To come up with something new, as I said, and these these concepts and or theories are that of cultural hegemony that was developed by Antonio Gramsci, uh, an Italian uh, philosopher and um, also politician uh, that lived during the first half of the 20th century and wrote during those years, uh, and and he died in a fascist prison. When uh, we but we. Uh, we got most of its uh, writing, even though they are in a rather unsystematized, um, they were kept or saved in a rather unsystematized version. Uh, but editions have been published afterwards, and I use this this idea or this this theory rather of culture hegemony. Also, I, I apply it to these these case studies, and, and I think I think um, uh, fruitfully. But again, this is up. To the reader to decide. Uh, the second concept is that of the dehistorification, um, uh, which was also developed by an Italian scholar, an Italian anthropologist, Ernesto De Martino. Um, and uh, but but not, not not all of them again are from the south, as the first chapter promises. Now this theory from the south, from yeah, from Italy and France mostly. Uh, no, not at all. Uh, actually, some of these other theories were developed by um, British or American um, scholars. For instance, uh, the the um, the paradigm of the anti-structural anti-structural events, famously developed by Victor Turner. This is a more of a classics in the discipline, and it's also definitely not unprecedented when it comes to interpreting carnivals. But I also look at Don Handelman's. Uh, very convincing uh, theorization about uh, the interpretation of public events and their political dimension precisely. So I try also to apply this paradigm to my cases and see how, uh, how, if, if that works. And I think it worked indeed. And uh, last but not least, actually quite importantly, perhaps most importantly, I use uh, Marshall Salin's um, theory of the structure of historical conjunctures. Um, in the um, to understand how to understand the, the interplay between cultural continuities and the, and the need for societies to keep certain features unchanged and to try to reproduce them and transmit them over time, but at the same time facing social change or big transformations and seeing the conjuncture between these different dimensions. And very often, I think carnival showed 
or certain carnival occurrences in the history of Europe showed or not really showed or could could be can be used to understand this conjuncture better. They were in a way an epiphenomenon on something that was at work in the in the depth of social cultural life that by using certain um, the right theories like this one for instance, we can really see this work of culture uh, in its functioning, how how uh, continuities are shaped through transformation and the other way around. How transformation can also confirm or, or solidify continuities, even though this might appear quite counterintuitive. Huh? For example, if we think of revolutions, for example, of this uh, this idea of a rupture, a watershed in history after which nothing is the same again. And this can in, indeed be the case, and we know several of such examples in European history from the Middle Ages up to nowadays. But what I look at is precisely what are the, the, the elements that continue being at work, that resist or persist, uh, even uh, though or in spite of these radical transformations. And I think probably Marshall Salin's uh, theorization and extremely challenging and rewarding um, scholarship uh, has really helped me uh, kind of resolving some of these dilemmas in the in the general history of European carnival. Even though he was a, an anthropologist of Pacific societies working on totally different matters, but he was, in my opinion, he was the greatest living anthropologist, unfortunately, until a couple of months ago. Uh, it died, no, not even a couple of months, it died one month ago, I think. I was professor of social anthropology at the University of Chicago. This was a, a, a big loss. Um, and I, yeah, I, I, I like to honor his memory in this, in, in this interview by, by uh, affirming that, uh, yes, his, his work had an incredible impact, uh, especially on this book. Uh, the conclusions of, of this book are, are strongly influenced by, by Marshall Salin's uh, work. There, yeah, it's, it is almost a 100 pages, uh, 80 pages uh, chapter, so there would be a lot to talk about uh, if we really wanted to go in any any deeper. But I think, again, we leave it, we leave it perhaps for another time or, or to the reader. Yeah, and I think it really rounds out, like you were saying, the previous chapters really well um, and, you know, leaves a lot of like spark for a reader that's super interested in carnal, for instance, of ideas of how, you know, they might play with some of the models and frameworks that you, you know, present there. So I think it's definitely a good um, ending for that book. And then I wanted to ask you too, sort of like, especially given everything that's, you know, been happening in the last year with the pandemic and whatnot, I wanted to get your opinion too, since you are so well-versed in these different, you know, aspects of European carnival, what have you, what do you see happening like right in the last year and then maybe transitioning, you know, as well happening in some of these European carnivals today? Like what do you, how has the pandemic and sort of just the general crises of this moment been playing out in some of the carnivals you've looked at? What do you see happening um, that might, for instance, come into play with some of the ideas Right, that you describe here. Um, we are working on this with a research group, and we are we have also organized a conference uh, 
that will take place in a couple of months precisely about this. Actually, we will be looking at rituals and, fest and festivities in general, not only carnival, far from that, because the disruptions brought by the pandemic uh, affects all, all public life in general, all sorts of uh, gatherings or rituals or events or festivities, everything. So in this respect, Carnival is just one of the victims of the current state of things. Uh, an eminent one, of course, because of the this uh, extraordinary continuity. Again, like in Europe, we have carnivals that have been uh, been held without any interruption for centuries. Uh, and it is an unofficial festival, very often prohibited and resisted by the hierarchies that nevertheless has been extremely vital for 1,000 years. It's, in this respect, it's really unique, uh, really, really unique. We, we know of, probably I can say with a certain, perhaps with the exception of the, of the uh, religious, the Catholic, for instance, uh, liturgical uh, festivities and, and rituals, we know of very few other examples of such long durée, extraordinary continuity over time. And, uh, and so seeing now that we are forced to disrupt these things because of the current situation, uh, it also, in a way, it opens our eyes on the importance of them. Yeah? Because, you know, so, so the cliche goes, right, that we realize how we miss certain things uh, when, uh, when, when we don't, you know, we can't access them or we don't have them any longer and not before. We, when we can still enjoy them. And this is quite the case with uh, gatherings in general, right? And now the situation is fortunately improving, but it's been a very tough one and a half years. And, um, and, 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 and as I said, we are now working on this idea of uh, uh, how did communities, how did people react to that? What were perhaps the cre creative ways of, of solving this impasse? of getting past this, uh, these disruptions. Um, and we have gathered a lot of ethnographic material uh, and um, the responses have been very diverse, sometimes unexpected. Uh, in a few cases, there were no responses and people were simply forced into you know, the domestic sphere uh, with the impossibility to perform uh, rituals that sometimes had been performed for centuries without interruptions. So this is indeed an interesting thing to observe, uh, to observe the reactions, the reasons, and, uh, and how people make sense of this. You know, the, the, the power of tradition lies in, in a few features, such as uh, transmission and repetition, right? And if we don't have repetition any longer, then we have a problem. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, so, yeah, the, of course, the underlying idea is that of tradition, right, which is one of the key concepts in anthropological studies, in ethnology, folkloristics, anthropology, and history. And so how do, how do people reconcile the, 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 the impossibility to reproduce something with the necessity of reproducing it, which is what the tradition is supposed to do, now to, to, to prescribe the, 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 the transmission through repetition of things. And communities have, have been responding to this dilemma or paradox uh, in different ways, uh, creative ways very often. And, uh, and yeah, this is a very interesting and promising new track, research track that we plan to explore. 
and also also because hopefully we will soon not be in this situation any longer <laughs> and uh, so yeah it, it will have been a conjuncture as, as Marshall Salins would have called it and precisely by looking at the changes but also the the, the, the persistence in change uh, we could really grasp the importance of these, of these elements such as rituals and festivities right because they they they, they show that even through change and transformation, certain things are supposed to stay the same. And, and the question is why and how do people manage to do that? And what are the, the set, or the panoply of meanings and social functions that are brought along in the process of reshaping and, re, and, 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 and reenacting and, and, and transforming things that need to be transformed because they cannot be undertaken as they did in the past? Right, so it's really the entanglement of these different uh, spheres and dimensions that 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 is so socially relevant, and it tells so much about society that no wonder you know, that there is uh, this curiosity now among anthropologists, sociologists, and of course, carnival, just like any other of these elements, can be at the center of the investigation, and then it's up to the uh, investigator, it's up to the researcher to you know to try to to pull out as 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 much uh, from from this as possible, as much uh, social uh, meaning uh, density and 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 uh, and um, uh, yes, yeah, so, as 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 much explanatory uh, sort of uh, elements uh, as as possible. Even though it is, it can be a hard task to to do. Right? We uh, ethnographers have been also. Uh, in, in the impossibility to undertake their their task as they used to, of course there are there is also a variety of different methods and techniques such as an ethnography, right? Uh, participating, so to say, so participating through video calls to all sorts of different things as we are doing right now. Uh, but unfortunately, when it comes to ritual and festivity, this will inevitably be considered a surrogate, right, of, of the actual thing. And, uh, and so there's also this change of meaning or this re-semantization of, of not only why we do certain things, but how we can do them. You know? So the form, in a way, carries meaning as well. Uh, so, yes, there's a, a new <laughs> expanding galaxy of research questions out of the current tragic situation. And again, um, cultural manifestations such as carnival can can uh, help us to better understand what, what's going on out there. Yes, thank you, Dr. Testa. I was just curious to kind of get your thoughts on that. And thank you so much for talking with us today. Definitely learned a lot from the book and talking with you. Thank you very much for your invitation and for saying so, Emily. Uh, it's been a pleasure. And, uh, well, hopefully le let's do it again. <laughs> yes, we'll, we'll keep in touch. Um, and listeners, just as a recap, uh, this was an interview with Dr. Alessandro Testa, author of Rituality and Social Disorder, the Historical Anthropology of Popular Carnival in Europe, published by Rutledge in 2020. This is Emily Allen, and I'll catch you next time here on the New Books Network.